Hey, hey, water coolians. Welcome back to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. Today we are joined by Kenzie Cooper Ryder, cognitive science writer and host of the Mini Minds podcast, which is available on all major podcast listening platforms. And in this episode, we have a conversation about whether the language you speak and the culture you identify with can possibly give you some uh, superhuman pain receptors and how the animated character grew from Despicable Me, well, an actor who used to wear a Guru costume at Universal Studios is in hot, hot water for throwing down the okay gesture in a photo. Now, I have recently been heavy into watching videos of body language experts breaking down interrogation videos or YouTube apology videos or just just videos in that category in general. And it's insanely interesting to learn how these small movements or gestures that these individuals do can tell so much about them in, I mean, obviously that particular moment. And to be able to have someone like Kenzie on to get a bit of background, especially into gestures, I mean, technically I now have everything I need to know to be in an interrogation. So uh, just just put me in, CIA. I'm ready to I'm ready to interrogate some baddies. And by baddies, I mean actual bad individuals. I know you uh, I know you silly gooses at the CIA have had some uh, trouble with that in the past. But speaking of horrible things done in interrogations and the massive amounts of unnecessary pain caused, one concept that did come up in our first conversation in which we discussed the idea posed by a graduate student on how we may experience pain, it's important to remember that everything we feel is very, very subjective. We can get close with science and medicine, but it's still subjective. Someone like Mike Tyson or Evil Knievel have had, in Knievel's case, completely different reactions to pain as Kenzie or I would. I mean, I forgot to ask Kenzie this, but I'll make a what what I believe to be a very highly accurate presumption that he, like myself, doesn't enjoy being punched in the face or crash landing a stunt jump in Las Vegas and breaking his pelvis and femur and ending up in a coma. (laughs) And these are principles that also apply to a ton of other emotions as well. If you're mad, sad, happy about something and someone else is, for example, less mad or more happy about that same thing, your feelings are still valid. You know, you're, you're an individual and how you feel matters. So with that, you know, some sage parting words before we dive head first into the episode and these are words backed by a scientist and to be honest must be said according to my legal team aka cheaplegalteam.com if you are bilingual you are not bulletproof if the person shooting you is speaking your native language i just want to make sure legally i am cleared on bilingual people thinking they are bulletproof after listening to this episode so without further ado ladies and gentlemen this is water cooler talk episode 57 titled movement sympathies with kenzie cooper Ryder. enjoy this is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world and while many of these stories may seem fake they're absolutely not because they're real 
This is from Eureka Alert, November 30th, 2020. Does your pain feel different in English and Spanish? We take for granted the fact that feelings such as love, happiness, or pain are described with different words and expressions across languages. But are these differences in the ways we express these feelings in different languages also tied to differences in these sensations themselves? Would a painful event like a stubbed toe or a bee sting hurt less if a bilingual chose to describe or think about the event in Spanish as opposed to English? These sort of questions were central to the development of a recent study by Morgan Gianola, a psychology graduate student from the University of Miami entitled Effects of Language Context and Cultural Identity on the Pain Experience of Spanish-English Bilinguals. In Morgan's study, 80 bilingual Hispanic Latino participants from the University of Miami and Miami-Dade County communities visited the lab to participate in a separate English and Spanish testing session. During both sessions, they received a pain induction procedure, aka painful heat, being applied to the inner forearm, and then participants provided ratings of their pain with one group only being handled in English, while the other group only being handled in Spanish. Morin explained that this study was inspired by previous research in the field of linguist relativity, which has shown differences between English and Spanish speakers in cognitive processes like memory for specific events or categorization of objects, and that these cognitive differences are also seen among bilinguals when they switch between English and Spanish context. Morgan hoped his study would clarify how such psychological differences across languages might also relate to changes in physical and emotional experiences like pain. As for the study, Morgan states, all of our participants identified as bicultural. After each experimental session, we had them fill out surveys like how often they use each language and how strongly they relate to and identify with both the Hispanic and US American sides of their cultural identity. The interesting thing that we found, rather than participants always showing higher pain in Spanish, for example, was they tended to report more intense pain and show larger responses to pain when they spoke the language of their stronger cultural identity. According to the study's findings, participants who engaged more with Hispanic culture showed higher pain when speaking Spanish, while more U.S. American-identified participants reported higher pain in English. Morgan states, The factors affecting bilingual psychological and physiological responses to pain can differ across individuals. And we also see that language can influence such a seamlessly basic perception as pain, but that the cultural associations people carry with them may dictate to what extent the language context makes a difference. So, Kenzie, I want to just ask you for, first off, do you believe in the results of Morgan's study? Obviously, he only did it with 80 people. And I know in most studies, you're looking for like 500 to 1,000 people. Do you believe in a study that bilinguals feel more pain when perceiving the world through the culture they most strongly identify with? So it's a it's a, it's a good question. Do I believe in it? I mean, I, I don't ever really say strongly that I believe or don't believe in a study. I think that the idea behind the study is interesting. I think there's reasons to think it might be onto something. Mm -hmm. But any one study like this isn't going to demonstrate a huge idea like the language we speak uh, makes us feel pain differently. Um, just it just can't do that. You need like so much more evidence to show that the idea is plausible, and I think it was an interesting study for sure. But I I, I wouldn't you know I'm not going to scream it from the rooftops until we've got more, <laughs> more evidence. How's that for a very academic? Uh, <laughs> easily answer. In an academic sense, like what would be the next stop in doing a experiment like this? Would it just be more and more and more people until that margin of error is as low as possible? Yeah, that, so that would be one way to do it. I mean, just in general. So more and more these days, scientists, especially in psychology and in sort of the behavioral sciences, the cognitive sciences, scientists are really interested in, you know, making sure our results are like firm. And often that means 
yeah, bigger samples, but it also means things like, you know, just repeating the study in different labs. So so you don't just have like one quirk, some some quirk going on in one lab. So you want to have kind of like different researchers doing similar things and slowly building up evidence that this this is a real a real phenomenon. But yeah, I mean not I don't want to immediately undercut the study. I mean I would say this about any I would say this about <laughs> any kind of one study finding. No fair. Yeah. Um but it's just it's interesting the way you said the way you asked the question do you believe in in this result because like when I teach about this kind of thing my students will also, will often say like oh I don't I don't believe in this or I don't believe that. And I'm sort of like it's not really a question of of, of belief, like it's like the data kind of is the data. And so you might think there's not enough data, or you might think there was a flaw in the reasoning, or you might think they didn't do the study properly. The data is the data. And so you've got to kind of just like, you know, take it for what it is. And, and Is yeah. it more of like Morgan has this data that he got that says, you know, you're more likely to experience pain harder when you're in the, the culture that you're more identifying with and then seeing if that's applicable to the real world because in one of your articles you talked about the principle of least effort mm-hmm. and you'll have to correct me if I get any of this wrong but to me it makes sense that when we feel pain as humans pain feels very rudimentary it's very it's a very deep emotion that every every being in you know at least in our universe experiences and so you're more likely when you're in pain to kind of go into what's more natural to you. So if you're, you know, I grew up as an English speaking individual, you know, I know some Spanish. So obviously it makes sense to me why I would feel pain more intensely in English because that's more deep within me. I don't Mm -hmm. know how to exactly explain that. Is that kind of that applicable? This makes sense but now let's find the data to make it even more solid. Let's, if we can, let's like unpack it a little bit because there's a lot of interesting aspects about what you just said and about this study. So on the one hand, as you said, pain is this kind of very rudimentary thing. Like it's, you know, such a basic impulse. I mean, it's not like it's a purely a human thing, right? Like all organisms, I shouldn't say all organisms, but many, you know, many more mobile organisms uh, feel pain because it's like an evolved response to help us get away from stuff, uh, dangerous stuff in our environment, right? So it's, it's super rudimentary in that sense. But it's also super subjective. And we know from other work that there's a lot of psychological stuff going on when we experience pain. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of ways that pain can be enhanced or suppressed by kind of more psychological phenomena, right? So it's both this really rudimentary physical thing going on, but also a rich kind of psychological experience. So that's kind of why I think it's plausible that something like this, like the your cultural identity or the language you're speaking in an experiment could actually feed into this kind of pain experience. Mm-hmm. The main idea in the article, at least from, from what I gathered, because I went obviously being, you know, a, a scientist or whatever, I went to the original study and looked a little bit into it. It looks like the main idea is that the main difference between English and Spanish, which are the two languages that they looked at, is that like in English, you say something like, oh, um, it hurts or my head hurts. Whereas in Spanish, you use a different kind of grammatical form where you would say something like the head hurts me. And so you emphasize the you-ness of the experience, like you're emphasizing that you are experiencing it. You know, like just think about the, the, English, the English phrase is kind of funny if you think about it, like it hurts. It's like, it hurts what? Like, what do you mean it hurts, right? It's like we don't mark that it's ha- something happening intensely to us, whereas in Spanish you do. The researchers were sort of had this idea that maybe the fact that you're highlighting the meanness, the kind of personalness of the experience 
is what makes pain feel more intense when you're doing this experiment in a Spanish-speaking context. So if we wanted to see whether that idea was a good one, one thing that we would want to do is maybe say, okay, if that's really what's going on here, we should find other languages that are like Spanish and other languages that are like English and do a similar study in those languages. That way we would know that it's not just some quirk of this lab. It's not just some quirk of these participant groups. It's not some other thing going on with English and Spanish. It's not an accident of statistics. This is like what's going on when your language describes pain in this particular way where it emphasizes that you're involved, you're more likely to have a kind of heightened uh, sense of that pain. You're more likely to feel that pain kind of acutely. That would be a way to kind of back up these results to give them give them a little firmer grounding, I think. You know, to that main question that I sent you, you know, does the way we describe these languages, English maybe not being as descriptive or you need all these more, more of these adjectives to make English descriptive, does that change the way we perceive the world? Yeah. I mean, so it's it's a super fun question to talk about. It turns out it's like one of the most controversial questions in the entire field of the study of like <laughs> I'm glad I asked language it in mind. So I'm sure we'll just we'll get to the bottom of it in this episode. No question. So all the problems. <laughs> That's all I'm hoping yeah. for. <laughs> uh, we'll just knock knock this one out. Then we can take on, you know, the meaning of life and something in a in a later conversation. Yeah. No, so I mean, <laughs> it's it's a it's a it's a long history. I'm not going to bore anyone to death with the details, but basically, there have been two camps to this, you know, roughly speaking, for decades now. An, an original proposal in the 1940s or so by this linguist was that yeah, the language that you speak forces you to sort of use certain categories to describe your experience. By using those categories, it actually sort of changes that experience, filters that experience, and that's called the kind of linguistic linguistic relativity idea. Um, it goes by other names, but you know, linguistic relativity, that your uh, experience is relative to your, your language. And then there's another camp of researchers, you know, there's always another camp, there's always the naysayers who say like, this is a totally preposterous idea. Language is how we communicate our, about our experience, but it's really just that. It's a tool for expressing ideas. It doesn't actually change the fundamental perceptions or the fundamental sort of stuff going on. And I think those people would be would be especially skeptical of the idea that it could change something so, again, rudimentary or basic, as you said, as pain experience, right? And so over the, the time since that debate started, again, 1940s, people have been studying this question in all kinds of different areas. So for example, maybe the longest or best studied area in these debates is color. Okay. Languages have, you know, different color words. Some languages only have color words that distinguish kind of lighter colors from darker colors. I think English is considered to have 11 sort of essential color words. Russian, for example, and other languages don't just have a single word for blue. They have a word that means lighter blue and a word that means darker blue. But it's not like a phrase like dark blue and light blue, then that would just be more sort of descriptors. It's like a basic word. So the, the words had the same sort of short status as blue or green or yellow, but they just mean light blue and, and dark blue. Yeah, this debate has been going on forever. And even there, in that in that case of color, there's still, I mean, I don't think anyone is like ready to say that we're done figuring that out. But meanwhile, people have been picking this fight in all kinds of other places. So talking about whether your language mm -hmm. changes how you understand space, for example, is another big one. How you understand certain kinds of sound like pitch, like the sound properties like pitch, that would be another one. So there's a bunch of these different areas that researchers in this debate have, have looked at. And the, the part of what's interesting about this 
study we're talking about today. So there hasn't actually been much uh, work on this pain question, even though it is this, it is kind of like, like we've been saying, this sort of interesting case study because it's both basic and primal feeling, but also sort of subjective. So potentially subject to kind of psychological effects. So I never answered your question, which is, which is like, <laughs> does your language, you know, does your language uh, affect I am on the side of people who think that there is good evidence that your language does affect certain aspects of how you experience and understand the world. But it's not like this kind of radical thing where your language gives you goggles that invert reality or show you new dimensions of reality or block you from keep from experiencing some some stuff and other people are just like they their vistas are just open you know it's not it's nothing that dramatic so you're saying you're saying like bilingual super soldiers are not a thing (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah i'm saying that it's not language isn't gonna like fundamentally rewire your understanding of the world but i do think it can kind of steer it and guide it Mm -hmm. and affect what you notice what you remember how quickly you notice things uh, how how fast you can process certain ideas i think that kind of stuff I'm totally on board with with that idea. I like what you said about, you know, everyone feels pain different. When you perceive the world, everyone perceives the world in a different way. You know, what's beautiful to you might be not beautiful or as beautiful to me. And what I find beautiful may not be as beautiful to you. So when we're talking about how is language, you know, drawn into that, at least to me, it makes sense that, you know, just because something is beautiful to me and I might not have the words for it, that doesn't mean English is a lesser language than say Spanish or you know some of those love languages just because they might have more words for this or as you mentioned you know Russian having a word for like a light blue but it's you know a specific word I definitely get that aspect of you know that group you mentioned I think the way I think about it is what language is doing a lot of times is like helping you process your experiences so it's not like it's fundamentally changing what actually you're experiencing, but it's helping you process them. Okay, so that yeah. could be uh, helping you move your attention through an experience. That could be helping you just like reconstruct what you what you experienced. It could be helping you imagine new experiences, you know, that sort of thing. But it's not like changing the raw the raw experience, I don't think. But again, like in a case like pain, there's the question of like what is the raw what is the raw experience because the experience itself is so so psychological and so uh, so subjective. There's maybe more wiggle room for language to go in and kind of muck around and, and shape things, I think. Yeah. And, you know, I was talking to my aunt last night about this. You know, she had uh, she broke her arm and, you know, she was like, before I broke my arm, I thought this experience was the most painful experience I've ever had. And then I broke my arm and like, that's the most painful experience. Mm. I think, you know, what you said, we don't really know what is pain. You know, it's based on how, you know, our neurons fired. I, I believe that's right. Pain feels different to everyone. So yeah, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying. And it's kind of like, so one of the, uh, it actually reminds me a lot of, um, I'm not sure I mentioned this when I was giving that list of like the big areas that uh, researchers have looked on looked at when thinking about this question. But another big one is time. 
time is sort of a fun one because it's it's like pain in in this sense where like yeah like you said what is pain like well what is time I mean literally <laughs> philosophers have been asking that question for millennia right like well what what is even what what even is this thing like we're constantly scheduling stuff and talking about time and worried that we're wasting time and trying to save time and all this stuff but like what even is it right it's such a ethereal sort of fuzzy concept and and pain is sort is is sort of similar it's like one of these things that's just like everyone experiences it's un, it's unquestionably really important to like life because we're constantly trying to avoid being in pain uh we don't want to cause pain to others you know it's it's a, it's an important thing but it's hard to put our it's kind of hard to like pin down you know obviously language is tied to culture but at least from my experience in in what I know and what I've been able to study, you know, I feel like culture plays a bigger or has a bigger influence on how we perceive the world. Because mm. you look at you, you talk about death a few times on the podcast, and, and I very much like how South American countries deal with death. It's more of a celebration where here in the U.S. it's more of this grieving symbol, or even in South American countries, you know, they have the concept of siestas, you know, or very late dinners. So that's that feels more cultural to me and. It's not, you know, necessarily a language thing. So to my answer to that question, you know, does our spoken language change the way we perceive the world? I would imagine more of the culture we identify with changes the way we perceive the world. Yeah, I guess I don't I, I don't see it as an either or. I totally agree with you that culture is a really powerful kind of shaper of our psychology and how we understand things. And I mean, I just part of why I don't really compare like I don't I mean, I guess I just I guess I guess to be more clear language to me feels like an offshoot of culture. Yeah, totally. And so they're both important. But to me, if the culture aspect feels more important, because as we'll talk about, you know, in the second news story, you don't always have to be talking to appreciate the world. I mean, I so I'm totally with you. I, I see I see culture as this kind of big kind of crazy quilt of stuff that we do that we learn to do from the people around us. And language is just one little patch in that crazy quilt. Yeah. So in that sense, yeah, language is definitely kind of smaller than culture. But also, if you just think about how much you use language to kind of process your thoughts. I mean, I, I think you can really make the argument that it's like our main tool for making sense of our experience, right? Oh, so, yeah, I, mean, I agree like, even, that, yeah. You know, I mean, I don't know if you're the same way, but like for me, what it feels like to think, like what it feels like to be inside my head is essentially to just be having a conversation. You know, usually it's in my own voice. Uh, and sometimes I'm imagining talking to other people too, but it's like, that is what thought is. It's just, it's language, right? So it's like the experience of, of, of thinking and processing is really the experience of trying to like put things into words. And then, you know, you also have this experience. I don't know if you have this experience, but like for me, I often learn what I'm thinking by either talking about it with someone or writing it out. So language is a, is a, is a, I'm totally with you that it's only a part of culture and that culture is a, uh, an important, uh, powerful thing. But for me, language is an especially important part of culture and it's more deeply uh, kind of intimately connected to how we process the world than other aspects of culture. No, I'm glad you said that because, you know, I think I went in with that expectation of only spoken language and language is so much more than spoken language, you know, as we'll talk about in that second story, whether it be gestures, you know, mm -hmm. you, you, we have this inner monologue in our heads. I, I have it as well. So you're not crazy, but yeah. <laughs> it's cool that you know what it sounds like because when I think of the voice inside my head, I have no idea what that voice 
voice sounds like. Oh, what do you mean? I I don't know how to explain it, but it just it doesn't have a sound to me. Oh, interesting. Like it's no discernible sound. So it's not your voice. It's just, it's not my voice. Is it voice? Yeah. Is it someone talking though, or is it okay? It, it it is someone talking, but like obviously you know you're in the podcast realm, so when you're editing an episode, you're listening to your voice. Right. So I think we have a very good idea of what our voices sound like. But when I have that voice in my head, when I'm thinking through things, it's just I can't discern what that voice is. Interesting. What about, so sorry, we, we don't have to get hung up on this, but I'm really no, curious. No, I think it's an interesting conversation. So like, what, what about when you're reading, like if you're reading like a novel or something, do you ever hear, like, do you have a voice associated with like a character or do you, is it a similar where you just can't really tell the voice from just the fact? It's, it's similar. I can't really tell. It's always a continuous, it's the continuously same voice, oh, you know, okay. especially like when I'm reading, it's, you know, I'm able to imagine what that scene looks like. I, I, feel like that's most people can do that but i never know what that voice sounds like. interesting yeah i mean this is a fascinating area there's like maybe a whole other conversation but just like <laughs> people have different experiences of uh when they're having imagery right when they're imagining things that aren't there whether it's what those things sound like what they look like people it's like pretty variable it turns out how rich people's imagery is and and what uh properties it has you know like can you imagine smells do your you know how rich are your images that, that sort of stuff it's 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 actually more variable across individuals than you might guess. Yeah, I mean, that'll have to be a conversation for another day because I also know there are a certain percentage of people that don't hear that voice and it's purely images. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be interesting to talk about why that happens. But for another conversation, yeah, sure, sure. I would like to welcome to the show cognitive scientist, writer, and host of the Mini Minds podcast, Kenzie Cooper Writer. Kenzie, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. Thanks so much for having me. So your podcast, Mini Mind, focuses on exploring how the beings of the world, whether it be humans, animals, or AI, think, sense, feel, and learn. And based from that concept, I've listened to a few episodes. Mm -hmm. To you, just to you, I want to know, what does it mean to be human to you? What does it mean to be human? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> You do love the uh, the big questions. This is another one we'll just you know, we'll just knock out before um, before moving on. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think to be human is to be kind of caught in this weird, uh, weird in between realm where we're animals on the one hand, and we're very much connected to our animal nature, and on the other, we've created this entirely other realm that's completely unparalleled in other parts of the of the animal kingdom where we have these um, complex cultural products like language um but also you know like belief systems religions uh systems of thinking like math and whatever crazy technology and so we're sort of to be human is to kind of to be to be living in this tension oh i like that this simultaneous kind of animal nature and uh you know human world that we've created and navigating and navigating both of those i guess that's how i think of it i don't know i've not this is like this, is like, this question is one of these questions that's like <laughs> Too big to be one that there's, I actually there is no answer. Uh, yeah, that I have actually thought much about. Yeah, there is no answer, so I wasn't looking for the perfect answer. But no, I think that's a very poetic way of saying it. You know, I've always seen it as you know, being human is about experience the the opportunities we have, and you know, like you said, what is time? You know, time is just this concept that we all agree to. You know, we all agree that the calendar is this many days. We all agree that there's well, based somewhat on science, that there's 24 hours in a day. So it's just like experiencing all these things, and I like that you know the 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 tension and and i think that's such a beautiful way of looking at such a, a complex idea i mean think about like money for example that's the one that i should have mentioned is like 
money is the most ridiculous thing, right? It's just this mass, it's this mass fiction Uh (laughs) and yet it controls so much of our lives, but it's completely made up. I mean, it's just entirely, it's just this um, cultural product that now we created and then now sort of dominates our lives. Well, thank you for answering that existential (laughs) question. I don't think we have any more, but just you never know. (laughs) Uh, Before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk are on a mission to help give back to different parts of the community and those who have helped build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. On the day of their episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to the charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we hope you listening to this episode can join in to help spread their message to your own personal audience. Kenzie, your charity of choice for today's episode is the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless. Do you mind explaining a bit about what they do, especially within Chicago, and why they are a worthy cause? Sure. So, I mean, as with uh, as is the case in a lot of big cities, you know, homelessness is a pretty visible problem. Um, It's especially visible, I would say, in the wintertime in Chicago, because every time you pass a homeless person, you're like, man, this is not, I mean, not that there's ever a good time to be homeless, but this is especially a time when you're just like, man, we've got to uh, figure out a, a way to to uh, make sure everyone's housed and cared for and has basic needs met or whatever. So yeah, I wanted to um, call out this charity. They're one that I've supported for a few years now in Chicago. I think they're doing great work and they're just basically trying to provide services to get uh, people's basic needs met in the Chicago area. So I think they're doing great stuff. No, I appreciate you mentioning them on the podcast. You know, obviously listeners know, you know, within the homeless population, you know, the high percentage of those being men and our work within male vulnerability and stuff like that. So it's always really awesome to have, you know, charities that, you know, are influenced within that sphere. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate you bringing them on. All right. Are you ready to jump into our final news story of the episode? Let's do it. This is from USA Today, October 1st, 2019. Family outrage after a universal character made OK symbol on six-year-old's shoulder. Tiffany Zinger said it was painful telling her six-year-old daughter that she'd be unable to use a family vacation photo for her second-grade class project because the image was marred by what appeared to be the use of a symbol of hate by the movie character Gru from Despicable Me. In the photo and a later-discovered video, the actor dressed as the character Gru can be seen forming an upside-down OK symbol with his fingers, which has recently started to be recognized as some as a hate symbol used by white supremacists, and places the upside-down OK symbol on the girl's shoulder. When I first, uh, I have more to read, but when I first heard about the story, I thought it was like something that could be like easily explained away, kind of like the face on the moon or Bigfoot actually being just a bear on its hind legs. Totally. But listeners, when you do look at the photo and especially the video, it's clear that this was at least not a accident by the actor in the Gru costume. I don't know how you feel about it, Kenzie, but to me, it seemed like it was not accidental. I feel exactly the same way. I was actually immediately reminded. I was like, oh, this is one of those things where like there was this controversy back during, I, I forget whether it was the first Obama administration or second Obama administration, but like where he was talking about uh, John McCain, I think it was, and mm-hmm. he scratches his eye with his middle finger and then the internet goes crazy. Like, oh, like o- Obama was like flipping the bird. And you look at the video and you're like, wait, what? I mean, he's scratching his eye. He happens to use his middle finger, but this is like, if he's flipping the bird, it is an extremely subtle bird. 
flip. But this is not that. I completely agree with you. It's obvious that uh, this was an intentional thing. I mean, it's just, yeah. yeah there's there's clear tension in the O. Exactly. The o. Yeah. But yeah, so we can talk more about that. Listeners, if you would like to look for yourself, those links can be in the description down below. Uh, the Zingers, Tiffany and her husband, Richard, traveled to Universal Orlando with their young daughter and son to enjoy a family vacation pre-COVID, but later discovered the controversial photo months later. And after more digging, were able to find the video showing the actor's actions. Richard commented, it's more than the okay sign. A lot of people don't understand what that sign means. Oddly enough, the incident happened just a week after the New Zealand shooter who took the lives of 51 individuals flashed the OK symbol during one of his court appearances. Heidi Beerich, director of the Intelligent Project at South Poverty Law Center, said the symbol began showing up in 2015 as an online trolling tactic used by white supremacists. She states, They like to photobomb images with symbols and then share them online as an inside joke or a prank. It's a game for them to slip their hate symbols in contexts that don't belong. However, since the hand gestures have many different meanings, Beerich says context is key and it's difficult to pinpoint a hate symbol if there isn't information about the person who's doing the hate symbol. Tiffany and Richard said they reached out to Universal a few days after discovering the video and Universal told the family that the situation was being investigated and handled internally. They say they're not motivated to seek financial compensation, but noted they did hire an attorney after a corporate lawyer from Universal reached out to them. Tiffany states, I want to cause change. I hope this doesn't happen to another family again, and I pray this doesn't happen to another kid. So I do want to get into that point that we we're discussing, you know, is this confusion over the meaning or kind of, I, I kind of just want to talk about, you know, how confusion like this may, you know, you mentioned the Obama thing, how confusion like this over hand symbols can come up and why this is clearly not a case, at least in your opinion. Because I don't know if you also noticed, but in the bottom right corner, I believe it's the young son. He's also seen displaying a very similar gesture to the Gru character, but that doesn't feel as intentional to me. I did not. I did not notice that. Let me. But it, feel, it feels less intentional. It feels more accidental if you're, you know, going to have this accidental okay symbol. What the sun is doing in the bottom right corner seems more accidental than what the Gru actor is doing in the more left corner. So I did not notice that about the sun. I will have to go back. I don't actually don't have it up here. But it's it's a little bit of a mystery, honestly, among people who research these kinds of gestures. It's a little bit of a mystery why humans are so good at being able to tell when a movement like this is a gesture versus when it's something uh, just kind of a happenstance movement, just like a, a movement with no intended meaning or message. Mm -hmm. And a good example that I like to use, like when I'm teaching about this kind of thing, is the difference between winking and blinking. Interesting. Okay. So a, a wink and a blink, they, well, first of all, they sound like that's accidental, <laughs> but uh, they look very much alike. They are exactly the same movement, but you usually know when someone's winking at you as opposed to just blinking i mean obviously blinking now i'm noticing all your blinks by the way now you know obviously blinking i'm just gonna involves, be full eyes open the yeah, entire yeah. rest of the podcast you're gonna just be like winking at me constantly <laughs> you know obviously blinks usually have both you're blinking both eyes at once and winks are usually one eye or whatever but still there's something about the movement itself that makes you realize instantly like this is you know this is a message there's something behind this i need to like think more about what this person's doing to the question of how are we able to tell or what did we key on when we did that? You know, there's like subtle things about you can kind of just when you're watching people make movements, you can sort of you can sort of easily tell how hard they're trying to do the thing they're doing and how much it's just kind of an afterthought or like maybe it just came out of some other movement or whatever. So we're kind of pretty attuned to the subtleties of movements. But the kind of interesting thing about 
gesture and about um, this case in particular, I think, or one of the interesting things, there's a lot of interesting stuff we can go into, but part of why I think this has emerged as this symbol for this white supremacy movement is precisely because it's a little bit hard to tell when people mean to use their gestures and when they don't. And as a result, it has this property of like, you know, what people sometimes call plausible deniability. You can deny that you meant to do it. If the guy, instead of putting his hand in that shape, had said something like Heil Hitler or, you know, said some message of support for white supremacy, just like an overt message, there would be no, there would be nothing for people to argue about. It would just be like, this guy is obviously a white supremacist. But because this is a more subtle signal, it becomes a more complicated issue. You know, like let's say, for example, in the the Obama case that I mentioned, let's say Obama really was trying to flip off John McCain or whatever. Maybe he maybe he was, and no one can ever pin that on him because he did this with a gesture that is deniable, right? He can deny that he meant that because it's got these this quality where you're not sure whether it was intentional or not. Whereas again, to use the to to the comparison with language, if he had said just like F John McCain, there's no subtlety there. There's no plausible deniability. You cannot deny that. That's just a statement that everyone recognizes was intentional and whatever. So gestures often have this kind of plausible deniability, which is why it makes them kind of a potentially useful tool if you want to do this kind of dog whistling. You can kind of think of this gesture as essentially a dog whistle. I mean, like when people are talking about how white supremacists find each other and communicate. They often use this phrase dog whistling, right? Which is, again, this idea of producing something that only some people can recognize. And so this gesture has a little bit of that quality because it's sort of flying under the radar, just like a dog whistle flies under the radar of a lot of people. I definitely, yeah, I I agree. And I sent you that photo in the chat if you want to look at it. I I definitely agree with what you said, you know, even, you know, what that Heidi Beerich said, you know, they like to photobomb images with these symbols because it could either mean this or that or this or that. And you're not outright saying I'm a white supremacist. You're not outright saying I support the Nazi movement. You can kind of have that deniability if you do get caught and it's like it's a game to them but in this situation you know it obviously affected this family to the point where all right they feel like they can't use this photo anymore Mm -hmm. these games when it comes to hate sometimes are taken way too far it's you know it's not a joke once someone else is negatively affected by it. And I think that's a case of what happened this time is someone was negatively affected by it. And then, you know, obviously to what that be a rich woman said is context does matter. You know, if Obama, like you said, came out and said, I hate McCain. And then, you know, a month later, he did the scratch thing. Obviously, we might be more persistent to say that was a slight at McCain. Obviously, we don't know much about this actor. Universal has kept it, you know, pretty lock and key. Trying to find an update on the story was tough. But yeah, I definitely 100% agree with, you know, the sentiment you had mentioned. Yeah, and I don't think, I mean, like you you said that it's, I don't actually know enough about this this gesture and how it's used by white supremacists to, to say too much about this. But like, I don't get the sense that it's like a joke. I think it's like a kind of attempt to show sort of, I mean, it is sort of a game in the yeah. sense that it's it's like, let's see how much we can do this without people catching on to it. Thinking about it as a joke is maybe too charitable. Like, I think it's more of an effort to, like, kind of build visibility and whatever around. Kind of saying, like, we're more apparent exactly, than you think. Exactly. Every time we slip this into a family photo or whatever, we're making the movement seem more visible. And that's probably what's going on. You're, you know, your background is more in gestures. We connected through your article about gestures. How have gestures evolved through the development of humanity? Well, okay, that's another big question. Maybe we can start <laughs> by talking just briefly. 
briefly about this gesture and how it developed, and then I'll, and then we can zoom out. Is that okay? Perfect. Yeah. Another reason why this gesture is so sneaky and nefarious, if we want to say, in this case, this okay gesture, is precisely because it's being adapted from a gesture that is a, usually a positive one, right? It's like the okay sign, the okay gesture, is like a totally widespread, used across the world way of being like, we're chill, everything's good, all is okay, right? And so by kind of co-opting that and then giving it this more nefarious shading, it's a- it's adding another layer of this deniability, right? Like you can be like, if someone pressed you on this, you'd be like, what are you talking about? This is, um, this is the okay sign. This is a positive gesture. Why would, uh, what's what could be bad about flashing an okay sign? So it's like, even if someone notices that you made the gesture, you have this other layer of deniability. Well, and also, if you don't mind me jumping in real quick, it could also be used on the flip. So if a photo is taken of me and I have the okay sign because I'm like, hey, you know, for some reason, that's obviously not a white supremacist reason. Someone can look at that photo and be like, well, what is Adam throwing up this white supremacist sign for to kind of throw that bad publicity at me? And I think probably what you're going to see is interesting. People in general trying to avoid the people who are in the know trying to avoid this gesture because they don't want to be associated with the white supremacist use of this gesture. But I would guess also white supremacists are going to stop using this because now the secret's up. The cat's out of the bag. Now that people know this is their under the radar signal, it's no longer an under the radar signal. They might look for a different one, right? So this uh, might all amount to a kind of disappearance of this once perfectly chill universal gesture because everyone's avoiding it for different reasons. So we talked a little bit about how this, you know, grew out of the okay, the okay sign or whatever. But to your question about like how gestures evolved over the course of humanity, I mean, this is another one of these things that people have literally been debating for hundreds of years. I would say that in this case, it's even more a matter of speculation because like, The reality is we just don't have that much insight into human evolution. The things we do know about human evolution are usually stuff that's closely related to our bones and uh, our dwellings and that kind of stuff, stuff that's preserved in the archaeological record, right? Words don't fossilize. Unfortunately, gestures don't fossilize. It'd be super awesome if they did. We could just <laughs> go dig them up. Be like, oh man, look at this ancient gesture. He's flipping us off. What does that mean? <laughs> um, I mean, it would cause all kinds of other problems about like the context, you know, as we've been discussing. But anyhow, really, we just have to make our best sort of informed guesses as to what the origins of gesture might have might have looked like. And so part of what we can do is things like look to our closest cousins in this case, you know, like the chimpanzees, see how they're using gesture, and then imagine what our common ancestor might have been doing in their gestures. We can do things like, you know, look at children and see how children develop gesture over time. And that might give us some clues. It's not like a, you know, you can't just like read our our evolutionary history in the life of a child, but it does give you some clues as to how, how gesture could have emerged. So things like that. I like the aspect of you including your article on Aeon that children will point to things when they don't have the language yet to describe what they need. They'll point to things, they'll gesture to things. So there's been a few reasons why like for hundreds of years people have speculated that we first started communicating in a rich way with gestures rather than with spoken words and one of the main things that people point to pun intended is the fact that children are pointing and gesturing and waving and you know begging for more and that sort of stuff before they can really articulate much so that just lends plausibility to the idea like well when someone 
with a human mind, human-like mind, wants to communicate but can't use words because they don't have them yet, what do they do? They gesture. So there you get this idea that early humans must have been gesturing before they could speak. And then there's, you know, there's other reasons to think this is a a reasonable um, hypothesis, right? There's the going back to the um, primate case. I mean, if you just look at our cousins, the chimps, how they communicate, they do a lot of vocalizing just like we do. They do a lot of interesting body movements. But if you look closely, it looks like they're actually using their gestures in more sophisticated and more intentional ways than they're using their vocalizations. So that suggests that when we split off with the chimps, at that moment, about, you know, 6 million to 8 million, somewhere around there years ago, when we had last had a common ancestor, that suggests that that common ancestor we had was probably pretty chimp-like. And that creature most likely was using gesture in a more sophisticated way than they were using speech or using uh, vocalization. So we get another support for the idea that, yeah, maybe uh, it started in the gestural channel and then evolved from there. I mean, I have a somewhat basic understanding of animal biology, and I somewhat understand that uh, example like chimpanzees, they have a similar vocal structure to humans, but that the reason that they can't have complex language like we have is more of something within the brain that doesn't allow them to get to that point. And so when we're talking about the evolutionary tree of how humans became humans, is it just an aspect of chimps, they found a way that was easier for them to communicate, and then we found a way that was easier for us to communicate? Because even like looking back to that photo, and hopefully you got a chance to see the little kid in the bottom right corner, it's so easy to confuse hand signals. Like we've been talking this whole time. It's so easy to look at the the hand symbol of OK. And now after reading the story, people are going to be like, every time I see the OK hand symbol, is that a white supremacist hand symbol? Is that one of a or at least a passable reason why humans tended to move away from only hand gesturing to a, a more verbal communication because there is so much confusion or potential confusion? Potential for communication for confusion. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Um, I haven't really thought about that too much, but I'm going to immediately shoot it down. So here's (laughs) why. Yeah, I mean, so we know from sign languages, the sign languages used, there's more than 100 sign languages used around the world today, primarily by deaf people, but then also um, hearing people within deaf communities who have, you know, uh, deaf family members and so on. So, and we know from the last like 50 years of scientific research that those sign languages are sort of every bit as complex and sophisticated linguistically as spoken languages. So they're really just kind of like this alternate form of language, the same kind of kind of exquisite structure and the same capacity for sharing really complex ideas, but in a different channel. The fact that this example, this existence proof, the very existence of sign languages suggests that there's not some fundamental issue with using your hands to convey meaning. You know, we have pretty amazing hands and we have pretty amazing control over them. And we're able to create a lot of configurations with our hands through movement and handshape and so on, such that we can create these messages that you're not going to confuse. Now, in the case of the kid, I did look at this photo and I agree, it's, it's sort of eerie how the kid is doing a very similar thing to the cartoon character. In that case, the reason why it's confusable, though, is partly, I think, because we're looking at a still image rather than the actual video. If we, I mean, this is just a hypothesis. We could go and do this. But if we looked at the video, I think it'd be more obvious that the cartoon guy is really intentionally putting his OK sign there, whereas the kid is just kind of moving his hands around or whatever. So people's kind of casual hand movements aren't very crisp. They're not always going to be really easy to distinguish one from the other. But once people are trying to use their hands 
to express these really fine-grained distinctions as you would in the case of using a sign language. We're perfectly capable of making really clear, distinguishable signals with our hands. So I don't think that's I don't think that's a, a, a good argument. Sorry to to Nason. No, I no, I, I appreciate that because that's one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you because you like to look at those both sides. You even talked about how obviously we started doing vocal speech because you can't see shit at night, but you have that option of tactical or you know, most people aren't working at night because it's dangerous or you're around a fire. So, you know, I like that aspect and I appreciate you doing that. It's so important that I think I just always go back to that context. You know, you look at that photo and compared to the kid and compared to what grew the actor is doing, not grew, I'm not, don't sue me universal, uh, the actor that's dresses grew, but there's like, you know, that clear tension with his pointer finger. All right, this is a, not an accidental thing. Whereas, you know, you watch that video, I thought, thank you for bringing that back up. You watch the video that's included with the article. If you want to look at the video listeners, that little kid, obviously he's just moving his hands around. There's no clear intention. But then when you look to that group character, it's not hard to confuse that with anything. Yeah, totally. And then kind of just in general, you know, we kind of, you talked about, you know, just the amazing things of the human hand. You know, I'm someone who does it all the time. Why do people tend to still gesture so heavily when they speak? You know, you had mentioned in an article how speech came to be universally ubiquitously and automatically intertwined with gesture. Like, how does that happen? Yeah. So this is um, actually one of the biggest puzzles in this research area. And it's the one that I probably think about the most. I think we don't have a good answer. So when people talk about these deep questions, like why do, you know, why do humans do X or Y? Why do humans, whatever it is, why do humans like sweet foods? Why do we gesture when we speak? These kinds of things. We often talk about how you need sort of what's called a proximate answer to that question. And then you might also need what's called an ultimate answer to that question. So the proximate answer is like, you're just trying to explain sort of the physiology of what produces that behavior. And then the ultimate answer is like, you're trying to understand why it evolved. What was the funk? What is the function of this thing? Why does it even exist? In the case of gesture, let's just see, let's just look at those two kinds of answers. So the proximate answer, I think the, again, we don't actually know this, so I'm partly speculating, but I'm, I'm giving an informed speculation, but it seems like part of the proximate answer, what's going on in our brains is that when we speak, we're doing this really kind of difficult coordination task, right? I mean, like, have you ever watched, you, listeners can Google this, but if you watch like the MRI image of just what's going on in your mouth when you speak and all the fine movements that are happening and how your tongue is dancing around and your larynx is going up and down, it's insane. I mean, it's an insane dance of coordination, right? So in your brain, you're trying to pull off this ridiculously intricate movement uh, dance. And what's seems to be happening with gesture is that by engaging in that act of trying to speak, to do that dance, you're also activating areas that are involved in uh, moving your hands because your hand areas and your mouth areas seem to be controlled by the same sorts of circuits. Okay. So like, here's an example. People have told me that when you're putting on mascara, like when you're trying to like do something, you'll often open up your, you'll open up your mouth as you do it. So this is just because like the eye and the mouth are kind of controlled by the same sort of circuitry. So it's hard to do one without doing the other. These are sometimes called sympathies, movement sympathies, which means like you're trying to move one thing, but you move the other. So I think part of what's going on with gesture is that we're actually having this kind of movement sympathy. We're controlling this, this apparatus, this really delicate apparatus, our mouths. And at the same time, we're having this sympathy with our hands. That's like part of the answer. I know that's not the complete answer, but I think that's part of what's going on. So it's like the you can think of it in crude terms as just like the speaking process activates 
the gesturing process because of the way our brains are, are wired up. And there's some evidence that you can get for this, and I and mentioned these in the, in the article you mentioned, but you can get this, get evidence for this idea from other kinds of things. So one example is in sign language, which we've we've already mentioned. So sign language happens all over the body, but it happens primarily in the hands. Like signers are mostly making complex hand configurations to convey this this linguistic meaning. But if you closely watch signers as they as they um, sign fluently, and you can find signing uh, videos of, of fluent sign, and there's good documentaries that cover signing communities and so on where you could observe this, but signers will also use their mouths a lot when they're signing. So just as we move our hands when we're trying to control our mouths, signers seem to move their mouths while they're trying to control their hands. That makes incredible sense to me because, you know, you figure out through these nonverbal, non, like when you're not thinking about something, how intertwined your body actually is. And, you know, one thing is working off another thing that's working off another thing. And you don't realize it because as humans, all these things we do are so natural to us. That's why, you know, when we're watching a baby through this development, all these things seem so almost mechanic because they're figuring out those, you know, fluid motions. And then when you have that complete control over your body, or at least some control of your body, you realize that all these things are intertwined. So it makes sense that, you know, this hand-mouth sympathy is something that is reasonable. Yeah. And I think, you know, I will, again, I, will, I should sort of emphasize that that's not the whole answer. There's yes, other yes. aspects of this that could be picked out. But I think that's sort of one of the interesting aspects of it. You know, there's also some some work going on in Europe that I find really fascinating that's showing, for example, that like when you're um, because an interesting aspect of our gestures is not just like it's not just that we're like flailing around and then talking and those systems are just kind of totally separate. Right. It, the the part of the really interesting aspect of gesture is if you look closely, they're really closely synced up. So the the speech system and the gesture system, they're really synced up in time. So if I say something like, and then he jumped through the air and make a gesture, my gesture for jump is going to be perfectly aligned in time with my like emphatic jump speech, right? And people are finding in these studies, as I mentioned, that are that are being conducted in Europe, part of what's going on there is just like, there's this kind of full body energy expenditure that just gets kind of comes out in different channels. It comes out in your hands, it comes out in your the effort that you're using to speak. And so that those effort peaks are kind of just because we're sort of just like a, a bodily organism that's expending effort, and then it just kind of leaks out in all these different ways. So that's also part of why like gesture and speech are, are closely related. Kind of like gestures can somewhat change a meaning of what you're saying. You know, if you're talking about how high you can jump, you're like this high and you're working with it. Or, you know, to bring it back to Hitler, you know, being able to add intensity by slamming the desk when he's speaking or gesture can also be used to kind of add another layer of meaning to what you're saying. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that um, that's really the most interesting thing from from the perspective of someone who's interested in the human mind and is interested in how humans make meaning and how, how humans understand each other. That's kind of the most interesting thing about gestures is that they're not just redundant with speech, right? It's not just like a physical bodily version of whatever you're you are saying in speech. It's kind of its own form. It's its own medium. It's its own channel. And it can give you a different kind of picture, a fuller picture in some cases, or a richer picture than um, you get in speech. So let me give you an example, right? So I'm telling a story and it's coming to its dramatic conclusion. You know, I say, and then suddenly he opened the door. And as I say, he opened the door, I create, uh, sorry, I produce 
a gesture that shows the person opening the door. You, being able to see me right now, saw the gesture that I produced and you know what kind of door this person opened. But someone just listening to this is going to be like, you know, they're probably imagining a particular kind of door, but they may not know exactly what kind of door it is because I could have created, I could have made a gesture showing a sliding door. I could have done a gesture where someone pushes through a door. I could have had someone pulling a door. Someone could have opened a double door. I could have specified any of that with my gestures, but you don't know if you're just listening to the speech. So the gesture that I produced, which just for reference, was actually just a pulling of a single door with one hand. That added that meaning for you. And at some level, probably not consciously, you processed, you created a richer image of this story. I mean, I didn't tell the story. There was no story. I made up that there was a story. You processed the image of this person opening a door in a very specific way. And you only did that because you saw my gesture. Well, yeah. And it helps with connection too, because visually we're somewhat more on the same page of the story you're telling because visually, you know, you're doing this gesture and I'm seeing that gesture as, oh, now I have a better understanding of what what he is seeing in his head. So somehow, you know, we have a more closer, it's not going to be perfect, but it's going to match up better than if you just had no gestures whatsoever. Exactly. Yeah. You get a richer picture of what's in my head for sure. Uh, Kenzie, thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of these strangers and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful conversation. Listeners, if you'd like to hear more about Kenzie's work, you can do so by following him on Twitter at Kenzie Coop. Once again, that's at Kenzie Coop on Twitter. You can also head to his website, www.kenziecooperwriter, where you can find many links like a link to his podcast, Mini Minds, and a multitude of other content, including articles and blog posts. As always, to make it easier for you, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. So before, before we go, I want to ask you one more question. This is not an existential question. You might take it as one, but uh, I hope it's not. So as a scientist yourself, you know, the past year or so has given many people to really reflect on who they want to be in this world. And, you know, some of those people have found that they have interests in the sciences. So as a scientist, what can that community do to be more supportive and more inclusive to new voices? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think actually this is something that is kind of popping up on the radar of scientists as like an urgent issue that we need to do a better job of bringing in the wider community, a a bigger audience, make sure our research is kind of being communicated in a way where everyone can participate, where, um, you know, maybe the community is affected by the research or implicated in the research in some way, understand what we're doing. These are like becoming top of mind issues. And more and more, actually, I'm seeing scientists in my circles take it really seriously, this obligation to engage in better, clearer communication to any interested party. So it used to be the case, like I remember just 10 years ago or so when I first, you know, got on Twitter or whatever, was was blogging and stuff. It was kind of this like dirty secret you didn't tell anyone about. Like you were a scientist <laughs> who also liked to like write for a sort of lay audience about stuff. You just didn't really admit to that. You certainly didn't admit to that in front of anyone who might be in the position to give you a job or, or not. Right. Like it was not valued in the field is what I'm saying. But now increasingly, I mean, like more and more scientists are coming on Twitter. Science Twitter is super active. People are blogging about their research. People are really making an effort to kind of put out more digestible, accessible treatments of um, their work. So I think that's only going to accelerate in the next decade. So if you're a if you're a person who's always been a little frustrated by how opaque science can seem, I think it's actually we're like at the cusp of a sort of golden age of science communication where more and more you're going to be able to participate uh, fully in it. Not 
participate fully in the science per se, but fully fully kind of uh, have a seat at the table of understanding anyway what uh, is happening in the scientific world. As scientists, we're, we're engaging more and more. Hopefully, folks in the general public are, are, are noticing that and starting to like see, oh, you know, you actually can just go on Twitter and look for a scientist in an area you find fascinating and potentially understand what they're tweeting about, at least, say, 40% of the time. And the rest of the time, they're <laughs> tweeting totally arcane, you know, nitpicky stuff. I mean, that's my Twitter feed anyway. So anyway, to answer your question, I think scientists, we have an obligation to do that. And I think more and more we are doing it and it's becoming valued in the community. So hopefully folks are going to start to appreciate that and really get pulled into this conversation. Obviously, I'm not a scientist in case anyone doesn't know that by now. But <laughs> I very much appreciate being able to have, you know, individuals like yourself come on the show and have these types of conversations because obviously you're very knowledgeable about these topics. But to have these conversations that I felt very comfortable within this conversation that I knew what you were talking about and I could, you know, have a 50-50 conversation with you. Obviously, these stories have these strange and interesting. I mean, we talked about the character Gru sending out a white supremacist symbol, but we were able to talk about these such in-depth ideas of what gestures mean and what they mean for humanity. And so I very much appreciate you coming on the show and being able to have these very accessible conversations. For me, the fun of, of science, the fun of research is learning new stuff. And then like the second best thing you can do is share that learning and share that new stuff that you think is cool with other people. I mean, what's more fun than that, right? You get to sort of, it's almost like you get to do the learning twice. You get to do have the discovery process twice because you get to share it with someone else. So yeah, that's a super fun part of this whole thing. All right. Well, as always, thank you to all my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk, the only such podcast on the internet hosted by myself and guest host today by Kenzie, where we take the strangest and most interesting real life news stories from around the world and well, just try to have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories. Now, Kenzie, we've gotten to the point of the show where I hand over the show to you to close out the show however you see fit. Before we talked about, we've had people sing if you want to throw out some tunes, if you want to tell a joke, or if you just want to wrap up. However, it feels right to wrap up the episode. No pressure at all. The floor is yours. All right. Well, I am going to spare the audience my singing. Um, <laughs> I appreciate the suggestion, Adam, but it was a terrible one. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe I'll just close by picking up with what we were just talking about. I would encourage listeners, if they're interested in, in either the stuff we were talking about today or just you know any ideas that catch their eye in the news or whatever, if they want to learn more about that stuff, to, to go find some uh, researchers. There's tons of us out there on Twitter, on other venues, on podcasts. It's like the science podcast space is exploding. And we genuinely want to hear from you. We want to, you, you to be part of the conversation. I love getting questions from folks who have that kind of beginner's mind, who are coming from a little outside, who have a different angle on things, different life experience. Those, honestly, those questions are more stimulating than a lot of the questions you get from your fellow experts because, you know, we've all read the same stuff. Or whatever. So seriously, come on to the party. It's a fun place to be. To your point, you know, I found you through wanting to talk about obviously language, and then we were able to kind of dissect it to more gestures. So it is possible if people are wondering. I can't find these scientists. It is possible because I found you and now we're having this conversation. And once again, I very much thank you for coming on the show and having that conversation. Yeah, this was super fun, Adam. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, yeah. All right, listeners. Well, until next time. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real.
What an episode, what a guest, what a time. Thank you again to Kenzie for remotely joining us in the studio to talk about those bizarre news stories. As always, make sure to support Kenzie's charity of choice, the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless. All it takes is $5, the price of a coffee, or sharing their mission with another person around the water cooler, wherever those pesky, pesky water coolers may be. But anyways, to the corrections. During the first conversation discussing if we feel pain differently depending on the language we speak, to formally answer the query on if all or some organisms feel pain, the official Senate of Canada and the International Association for the Study of Pain made clear that animals that are capable of feeling pain are those that can feel fear, anxiety, distress, and terror, all functions that are similar to what humans feel when we receive noxious stimuli, which is a potential or actual tissue damaging event. All vertebrate type organisms may feel pain, but invertebrate organisms, like insects, do not feel pain. And for the final correction from our first news article, linguistic relativity, as mentioned by Kenzie, was developed by Edward Sapir and Benjamin Lee Worf, which would become popular in the 1940s onwards. All right, water coolings, that's another Corrections Corner. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to another episode of this little podcast called Water Cooler Talk. Once again, thank you to Kenzie for calling into the studio and talking about some of the strangest and most bizarre news stories the world has to offer. But anyways, that's your corrections. That's your episode. So, get out This here. is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. <laughs>